the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. Sitting on the floor Waiting for someone to tell me to go Trying to keep my mind off the things that I know I can't control But it's a hell of a thing Staring at everything you've ever Sealed up in boxes in the hallway with no light and nowhere to go. I want to drink my pain away for the first time in two months today. Yeah, I want to drink my pain. Welcome to the marinade with Jason Earl, a free flowing conversation about the creative process. With Creative People, this is episode 88, and our guest is Andrew Bryant. Andrew Bryant is a singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist whose music has been a steady companion over the last few years. Bryant's music first entered my consciousness through his band Water Liars with Justin Peter Kinkelschuster. The band has released four full-length records, their most recent album, Roll On, was released in 2020, the same year that Bryant released his solo record, Sentimental Noises. Both albums were among my favorites of that most auspicious year. I'm a huge fan of Andrew Bryant's body of work and uh, his most recent record, A Meaningful Connection, which just came out, is my favorite thing he has made. Y'all, this was so much fun and I'm so grateful for this opportunity. It is an honor to bring you my conversation with Andrew Bryant. For the first time in two months today I want to drink my pain away If I can't find another song to sing I took a walk and stood outside Watch the birds and the cars pass by. Oh, that's clear. Can you hear me? Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds good. I'm just using the built-in mic, so I won't even be. Oh, it's fine. Yeah, you. Yeah. Just trying to be too fancy, I guess. (laughs) No, I don't blame you. I, I, you know, I teach kids online, and so I have my mic and everything, and I um. The other day, I didn't have it hooked up, and I didn't realize I didn't have it hooked up. And then I was like, "Do I sound any different, y'all?" And they're like, "No, nah, you sound fine, man." <laughs> well, recently she was doing a, a big interview with like NPR uh, for her work and uh-huh. for a podcast, and I was like, "Oh, we need to make it sound good. Like I can totally do this." Yeah. And I had it up with Zoom this exact way, and it worked perfectly. So I don't know what was going on. 
It's funny, man. I mean, you know, I've done so many of these lately and so many musicians are, are I feel like there's a tendency to maybe overthink it sometimes, <laughs> you know, like it, it works. So I didn't even give myself a lot of time. Cause I was like, man, all I gotta do is plug this in and like click the link <laughs> always works. So right, right. No, I'm, not, I'm not very tech savvy when it comes to like computers, honestly. That's interesting. Um, I can work my like, you know, pro tools and shit, but, um, my wife is always having to like jump. <laughs> like, that's funny. He's taught How me so many things like, double clicks and swipes and shit that like i didn't even know i was like how the fuck do you do this like yeah it's funny man it's interesting how does that affect like when you're i mean everything's so digital now like how does that affect when you're producing something um well it it was funny because like one i'm working on this record she there was I had done vocals for this song like a couple times just on my own and I always just like record my do everything myself and I needed to kind of like stand up and be in the zone and be able to like punch in and like hit these vocals really hard because I couldn't get a good vocal take on this song been driving me nuts and so I was like can you just come up and try to click around for me you know like punch me in and punch me out I'll teach you how to do it real quick dude she figured that out in like five minutes how to do that. And then I was, she was just like punching me in and out and I, and then she started doing, I was like, how did you do that? <laughs> so I learned like a few shortcuts on my Ableton system that I didn't even know <laughs> existed. You know, like, I feel like I didn't even know that. Like one, once I meet people who are tech savvy, I'm like, holy shit. This is why it takes me so many man hours to get things done. You know, it just cause like, I don't know. <laughs> And I don't like, I'm not a big manual reader. Like I'm not the type of dude who's going to like read the manual. I'm just like, I'll figure it out as I go, you know? Well, there, there may be something, there may be something to that just to help the process too. Just the fact that you're going to end up making mistakes if you don't really know that technical part of it. And you're going to have to kind of fight with the fight with whatever you're creating a little bit. There may be something really good to the fact, like to your ignorance. (laughs) I think I think that's definitely kind of part of, of the way that I've always liked to make records was kind of just like not really understanding uh, what it was going to sound like. And I just kind of started doing it and figuring it out. You know, now I've made so many records, I know how to get sounds that I like. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to like what um, software, you know, what doll I'm going to use to record with or anything like that. I, I changed last year too. Like I really heavily updated my system. I've been using a really outdated computer and software for a long time because I knew it really well. Mm. Um, but I still was just like slow. On it, you know, it's just like I think I do. I like that tension of like, and it slows me down. It makes me like not just like, oh, I can do this really fast. You know, mm-hmm. I think if. I think if, it, if I keep myself like slow and kind of like struggling with the mechanics of it, then it like keeps the pace right for me. Uh, that makes sense. Cause it gives me, it gets in my head. It makes me think and it gives me time to like work out sounds instead of just getting bogged down on, on like doing tricks or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I like that a lot. I'm so let's kind of, let's talk about that in the context of the new record, which is just, so wonderful dude it is just you know i've been a fan of your music for a while i've i i I love water liars i sentimental noises is like go to for me it's on heavy rotation at our house i absolutely love it 
but this is my favorite thing you've done. And, and I, and not only that it is my favorite thing you've done by a little bit. And, and that's like a big thing to say, because I love your work so much. And so I'm interested in what that process looked like in making this because so much, there's so much going on. <laughs> COVID hits, you get sober, you know, all, all these things happen at the same time. And just if you could just kind of walk through like what that process looked like and how this thing came together a little bit. Man, it's really great to hear you say that about this record. And, and thanks for, for being a fan and listening first and foremost. Always good to hear. Um, man, this record, I didn't really plan on because of Sentimental Noises just came out, you know, um, a, a year ago, almost yeah. exactly. Um, I wasn't really planning to put out another record this soon um, at all. I usually, it usually takes me a couple of years to write enough songs and kind of weed out the ones that I don't like and find the ones that I do and kind of come around to the theme that I'm wanting to work off of and then get around to tracking it and then get around to mixing it you know and just like it takes a while but with this one i had like three songs at the end of 2019 that i was pretty sure were going to be on this record which were like birmingham uh take the time and i think uh the first track private window i had written and i was really kind of going kind of go into this record and spend a lot of time on it and i and really kind of work on this idea of time, um, past, present, and future. And I wanted to use uh, work, kind of explore technology a lot. And it kind of put these like timeless stamps on songs mixed with things that are very time sensitive, like Twitter and, mm -hmm. and don't at me and all these things that are like very present kind of moment, little things that people say. So I, I wanted to make a record that really juxtaposed that. Mm -hmm. And then because of what happened, I kind of wrote the next eight songs, you know, and, and just like out of nowhere. And I basically, you know, I was just like, I'm about to make this whole record of brand new songs that I've never played out, can barely even play all the way through, honestly, mm -hmm. you know, and just start piecing this thing together. And that's what I did. I just buckled down and started piecing it together for about it took me probably about nine months wow how you start writing it before you stop drinking and then yeah. and then you stop drinking how much how much did that impact the process um a good, a good <laughs> yeah uh, but not in the ways that you would think so um i, I think I've always been, you know, one of these things you kind of deal with when you're kind of in and out of quitting drinking or, or, or getting, going to therapy or getting any kind of help if you're an artist is like, every time you take a big life change, you mess up the process, right? You know, it's like, you're so used to the process of the thing that like makes you do it. And that makes you so reluctant to get rid of this big thing in your life. And so I don't know, I think I was to the point in my life where I was like, I know that's bullshit. You know, like I know that the, I know that I'm more um, productive, <laughs> the more the less I drink, the more productive I am. <laughs> I, I knew that I got to that point in my life. So I think that it actually affected it in the uh, overall in a positive way because it allowed me to write a lot. It allowed me to 
rewrite songs that allowed me to edit a lot. It allowed me to record different versions of the songs. Um, and then also, I would say this, the bigger part that it really brought in was it like kind of made me realize where I was at. And that's what I wanted to write about. Cause I, I was kind of so obsessed with writing about time that I realized like present now is a time. Like, what are you going, what are you going through right now? You know, I think I was trying to like not write about myself too much. And what I ended up doing was really writing about myself. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's what I needed to do. Uh, right. So it helped me in that way also. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the thing, I've been thinking about a lot of this stuff lately. And I think, I think maybe listening to this record has helped me kind of work through some things too. And, um, there are a couple of things that I want to talk to you about. And one of them is, is growing up in the church and cause it's, it's like ever present, right? When you grow up in the church and I read a wonderful interview, uh, I just came across this. It was with you. Um, since I left you this blog, what a great job that guy did on that interview. Yeah. Um, but you said something in there. You said, uh, I'm an atheist on a really bad day and a little bit of an agnostic on a really good day. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, I can relate to that, <laughs> you know? Um, but I think as I, we're close to the same age. And um, as I get older, like turning 40 wasn't, it didn't really phase me. Actually, it just sort of was like I, I turned 40 in December and I was kind of like, cool, I, I'm pretty good with myself right now. I'm pretty happy with myself. But as I get like on the other side of 40, now all of a sudden a lot of stuff is coming up. It's really interesting to me. Like even coming up to 40, it didn't, I wasn't bothered by it, but I am so bothered by mortality because of growing up in the church and I'm so consumed by it. I've noticed that on the other side of 40, I'm thinking about it all so much more even than I did. And, you know, I thank God for therapy. Like I, you know, that, that helps me work through it, but, but going like the more distance I get, the more it becomes consuming to me, like unpacking the trauma of growing up in the church for me at least. Right. And I wonder, you know, if you can relate to that at all and you know, how you wrestle with it. Absolutely, man. Uh, I, you know, turning 40 didn't mess with me all that much either, which I did last year, actually, you know, that yeah. was like another thing that happened to me last year. Right, turning. right. I feel like my kind of midlife crisis might have started about like 33 uh. Uh, or something like that. Um, I kind of it was it's weird. I, I have this like, when I turned 33, it was weird. Like I thought, like, this is the year that Christ died. This is the first thing that popped into my head. Oh my you God. Know, I was like, Fuck that. and then I was like, well, what, did, what have I done with my life to, to the 33, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I made it through 33 and I was like, you're fine. You know, it, mm -hmm. you, you're kicking good. And that was, that was right at the like point when water Lars was really taken off. It was about yeah. Um, and then through my third, you know, through my thirties, rest of my thirties was just, it really was kind of a whirlwind up and down, but, it's one of those things where what you're talking about, I relate to a lot because I think it's maybe healthy to, to really get here at this point in your life because it means you're kind of slowing down and taking a real good stock. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, I think it's real easy to ignore this stuff. 
Um, and that's one thing that I think is maybe a little too heavy about my music sometimes. And like, <laughs> makes it hard for me to sell records. Cause like, who wants to, you know, to listen to this 40 year old dude go through his midlife crisis and talk about his mortality, you know, like we've seen that movie before. And that's why I like it so much. You know what I mean? That's why I connect with it so much. I, I like it too. And I know there's a lot of dudes and all kinds of people out there that, that go through this stuff. Um, and, and I think the thing you're referencing in the, in the interview was where I was, I think he did do a good job. He kind of prodded me on that a little bit. Uh, and I wasn't completely ready to talk, talk about it on that level, but it was good that he did because it's one of those things where, I don't know, I felt like last year I was trying to get back in touch with spirituality in some way. Mm. And then I didn't know why. I was like, what, why? Like, why am I doing this? And I never really got the answer to why. And I'm still just sort of in the same place, you know, and so it's it's more kind of morphed into me just like being okay with like who i am and not knowing and having all the answers but there's also this level of the way that we were brought up in which that is not okay mm -mm. it's not okay to say you don't know it's not okay to question things it's not okay to say you don't have the answer mm -hmm. and so that is always eating at you a little bit and you know it's kind of like you're uh, um, your mom catching you do something you shouldn't do every day. You know what I'm saying? It's like that little bit of like shame you get as a kid. Um, I think that just is something that it starts out really young and it just is hanging around in there. Um, that's the way I look at it anyways. Well, and that shame is ever is that's the thing though, is that it, it, it builds. So right. it's a little bit of shame almost all the, all the time. I like, I'll never forget laying there as a really young kid freaking out about the concept of eternity yeah. you know because because you're if you grow up in the baptist church you're taught well if you do this one thing and believe this one way you're going to live forever in paradise and if you believe this other way you're going to burn in hell forever and the very concept i mean even like when we started to get into science like really get into space and stuff in school i was like i can't handle this shit <laughs> like, it's just, i can't do this science stuff give me a book i can do books i can't do this science shit because this whole concept of like there not being an end is like so and the tension between there not being an end but also that there being a clear finite end to my life on earth is just something that was always such a a, a challenge for me and that I think, you know, I'm, I'm learning through therapy that like that shit builds, you know, you have those little micro moments of shame that build and then lead to a deeper feeling of guilt later that has to be dealt with. I think that has to be, maybe you don't have to deal with, maybe you don't have to answer the questions by any means, but, but not dealing with that guilt is really unhealthy. You're right, man. Absolutely. Uh, and it's, what's interesting is when I got kids now, I got two 13 year olds and seven year old. Uh, since we, this is a great time to tell the story. This morning I was taking my seven year old is doing summer school. <laughs> we always check out the church signs on the way from here to there, particularly these two churches always have like these really great, you know, how they do the, the marquee, yeah. you know, it's yeah, all yeah. A, little, a little weird. Yeah. Uh, there's this really great one down in water Valley, Mississippi today it was so good it said uh, when gabriel comes to tootin 
we're going to be scooting. What about you? And it's like, so when you're talking about like things that have been done to us by our parents and our churches and all that, but it's just thinking about driving around and being a kid and read the stuff like that. You know, that's something that I notice now as a father, it's just like all these messages that are constantly coming at you as a young kid that are making you think about like, well, what are you doing with your life? And where are you going to go when you die? And you're, you know, you're like seven. You're like, I don't know. I'm going to summer school, you know, the one close church next to the school says, uh, eternity smoking or non-smoking like right now. That's what is on the church marquee. You know, I drive by these like every day and, I, and we talk about it. I talk, talk to my kids about it because, and I try to kind of make fun of it and also like explain to them like, well, this is what these people believe, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit ridiculous, you know, and it's a little bit ridiculous, but it's also kind of funny, you know, like I try to make light of it that way it doesn't freak them out. And then they kind of know that it's normal for people to think this, that there are people out there who think this way. There's people, it's normal for people like me to not think that way and not believe that way. And think for them to, you know, know, like, that both sides exist and it's okay. And they don't have to freak out about it. Um, <laughs> my son also said this morning, I don't know. I asked him something. I was like, well, what are you going to do when you go to heaven? Why don't you ask God this for me? Cause I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be in the bad place. <laughs> I was like, cause these people don't think I'm going to heaven. And he was like, Oh, he, he, and I was, he was like, where's the bad place. And I was like, you know, the other place is not heaven. He said, what, where's that chicken town? I was like, what is Chicken Town? <laughs> He's like, made this. I was like, this is great. I'm gonna start calling hell Chicken Town. <laughs> That's so great. He's going up that way. I, I was gonna. I, I wanted to ask you that, like, how you navigate, especially because I, I've been. I don't know why the first time I thought of of the of what I'm about to say was like six months ago. I don't know why. I'm sure that most people think about this shit before then, but for whatever reason, it hit me like six months ago, and I went maybe we shouldn't let kids go to church at all. Like yeah. until you get to a certain point, you know, and you know, I, I try to be careful when I say that because I, I have friends who, who oh. go to church and they take their kids and their kids are doing great. And, um, you know, I, I want to respect people's decisions when it comes to that stuff. But I do have this question in my head about like how, what my relationship would be like with other people, with, with my anxiety, with my mortality, if I had not grown up in the church and hadn't at, you mentioned seven. I mean, I remember being saved at seven, like the idea that you are allowed to make a decision about your eternity as a seven-year-old is just so fucking wild looking back on it. And so I, I was kind of curious. That's so great. Chicken town, like <laughs> that he's not, he's at seven. He's not bothered by that right now. You know, and I remember laying in bed being like, oh no, I need to make sure I'm saved. So I don't burn in hell forever. Yeah, At his age, I definitely knew what hell was. Yeah. Uh, he was chicken town, which I don't even know where or what that is, but uh, he loves chicken. So I don't know. <laughs> sounds better than, than heaven. <laughs> uh, me too. I was like, we're definitely going to chicken town, bro. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, you're right, though, man. It's one of those things where um, it, I, I feel the same way. Like, I've had definitely had those thoughts about, like, kids going, going to church. And, and I've had this thing, like, with raising my kids, you know, like, a lot of my family, it's like, you need to be carrying the church, you know. So that's sort of their main goal is, like, you got to raise your kids in church. Mm -hmm. And, like, even that's one of those things where, like, you can't, 
you're not allowed to just be like, why? You know, yeah. like, what, I mean, and I wouldn't even have a big problem with it. I think the problem is, is that like, if your church is teaching them the right thing, I would never have a problem with them going to church, you know? Right, right. If it was, if it was uh, orchestrated different, if the whole thing worked differently in like a better way that was positive, mm-hmm. that wasn't, but if you're not going to listen to me or other people who have the problem with the, what it, the church has done to people for the last however long, then, you know, then we can't even have that conversation. I think that's where the divide is. Yeah, totally I, I agree. defensive about it because I was raised in it and I've left it. And I know that I'm like finally to the point in my life where like, I don't know, I'm not going to chicken town, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, no, I, yeah, yes. I, I think, you know, the church is, and we don't have to spend too much more time on this and sorry oh, yeah. to, sorry to my christian friends out there who are listening right now but like same, same here i got a lot of good friends <laughs> yeah yeah I, yeah and um but they know, need to, to listen to me talk shit about it yeah I mean, for sure you know, friends, you know? it's like that's a, to me no. that's, that's where i'm at with it because... no that's a great that's a great attitude hmm. yeah that's a that's a great I, I think that's a great point man because i think like the church the, the thing I, I can only speak on my specific experience with it. Right. And I mean, it's where I learned hate. It's where I learned bigotry. You know, that's where I learned those things. You don't, you know, I wasn't, I mean, I was seeing it around me too, growing up and growing up in the South and different small towns, but like, but most of where I learned that stuff, you know, where I, where I saw hatred and where I saw bigotry, that was all coming from the church. That was all Sunday school taught, taught directly to me, right? You should not like this person. You should judge this person because they are from this place or they believe this thing or their skin is this color. Literally their skin is this color, like in Sunday right. school, you know, fucking wild, man. The most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning. say, <laughs> man. Yeah. I mean, that tells you all you need to know. Like if anyone ever just argue with me, I want to be like, you know, oh, our church is not racist. I want to be like, look around, bro. You know? Like, yeah. Yeah. Numbers don't lie. Well, I mean, and like the, the number of churches that, that teach like the curse of ham and all that kind of shit, yeah. like, yeah. you know, I mean, and I don't think a lot of folks know that, you know, that like, that's pretty common in Baptist churches that you're taught that black people are cursed by God. Like that's I a definitely, pretty... I definitely learned that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that really fucks with your head, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's a lot. If um, you're out just playing basketball with your buddies who are black and you're like, well, I don't know, ham seems cool to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ham in chicken town, you know, let's do it. <laughs> All you, you know? so chicken town's full of these guys, that sounds great. <laughs> this is where they're losing, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to make, uh, black people are not cool. I grew up fucking Michael Jordan. Like, <laughs> Yeah, like, don't be like Michael Jordan. Be like, this, you know, dude that works at the food store. I'm like, no. Yeah. I'm Michael Jordan. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So true, man. So true. I, I just wanted to be Barry Larkin, you know, or, or Barry Sanders or, you know, or Jordan, Jamal Mashburn, like all of those folks, you know, I had all those heroes. All my heroes were black, I guess. Yeah, mine too, man. It's the same when I was young. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's kind of 
shelve that and kind of if it, if it if it comes back up, it comes back up. I wouldn't be surprised if it does. But I'm I'm curious about on the new record. Um, you do pretty much everything, right? I mean, there's uh, some pedal steel work and some organ you don't do, and everything else is you, right? I mean, you're you're writing, you're you're performing, you're producing. Can you talk a little bit about like? how you approach that creative process versus how you would approach the process of songwriting and, and collaborating when you were with water liars or anytime that you're working with other folks, like what the, the difference between those looks like for you. And if you approach it from uh, a different angle or if it's, it's all kind of the same and then it just sort of makes its way out. However, it makes its way out. Yeah. Well, for me, um, <laughs> I mean, I write all my songs on a guitar. Almost 99% of my songs I write on a guitar. And I think that's a big a big part of the way um, me as a songwriter, I think if I write this song on a guitar and I strum it a certain way, this is the way that the song sounds to me, the songwriter in my head and the way that I sing it. And then I just try to take that and translate it into a band setting. And now I know there's a big part of that because I'm a drummer, because I can play bass, because I can play p piano, I can either hear it already or shelve it and know that I'll think about it later. You know what I mean? So it's like, for me, it is always about serving the song um, and what the original songwriter's vision was or is for that song. Um, and I know that because I, I used to record multiple versions of songs back in the day, I'd be like, oh, doesn't, I don't like the way it sounds that way. I'm gonna do it faster, or I'm gonna strum it, finger picking instead of strum it, you know, just like all these different production recording things you can do. And now I've really kind of got it down to like, I know what this song is gonna sound like as soon as I write it. Like, as soon as I come up with the riff, I pretty much know where I'm gonna go. Cause I'm like, I need a song that's about this pace and about this, Thing and it sounds good you know like this is a good riff i want to go i want to work off of this so i basically kind of write a lot of riffs and play around on my guitar a lot and the one that sticks you know i keep playing that and i make a voice memo and eventually i write my lyrics to it sometimes it all just comes out at once you know so uh there's lots of songs like birmingham on this album i wrote in like five minutes and i knew exactly how i wanted it to sound wow. i could even hear the harmonies like when i was singing the vocal you know for the first or second time through, I could hear the harmonies coming in, kind of knew, you know, where I wanted the melodies to go, like all of those things, it just kind of all came to me at one time. Um, but then there's other songs on this record, like Spiritual Genocide, I kind of just had the guitar riff, and it took me forever to kind of think of a lead guitar line. It, I had the whole thing tracked for like six months, and I got my friend Kel, I was like, can you, write something for this because I can't figure it out and he could never get around to it he never sent me anything back finally one day I would just turn my guitar amp up and it's like all right I've got to figure this out and I just I was like oh there it is let's do it you know and then I just tracked it so you know it's it's just serving whatever the song needs you know the songs go through levels too when you first write it it's one thing when you lay drums on it it picks up a little more groove you add bass it picks up a little more groove then you try to, you're like, where am I at now? And you reevaluate. You said, where's my space at? Like, where do I need to 
add space or I need to take away, you know, I just kind of start building things and I tend to build and then subtract is kind of the way I do. I kind of run with every idea I have and then I just start taking things out of it because I, I know that's the way to write. I kind of do my thing kind of based on the way people write novels and the way people write poetry and things like that, which is just you write a lot and then you edit a lot more. You yeah. Know? Uh, to me, it's really all about editing uh, when it comes to my own work. Uh, with Water Liars, it was a little different. The one thing I really did, uh, I didn't write a single song for Water Liars. Um, uh, uh, Justin wrote all of the songs. He was living with me for a good part of the time, so I was pretty in tune to what he was, um, like each song kind of as he was working on them, and I would hear him like kind of have the riff, play it for forever, and write a few lines, and he'd be like, Chink, scrap it, and, and he'd come in with a whole new verse, and he he's a really, really he's the kind of guy who, who spends a lot of time on one song, you know, like he really, really thinks about a lot. Um, I don't, I don't write in the same kind of way he does, but all that is to say that usually by the time I heard it, I kind of knew what he was going for, you know, and, and I, for me, it was all about kind of listening to the way he decided. I knew that once he decided he wanted to play the song that way, that's kind of the way it needed to sound. And so I really was just kind of always following him, you know, especially when we first started the band, you know, he would play. If he started hitting pedals, I'd hit loud, you know, if he, and I was just kind of, I really was just following him most of the time. And then even on Wyoming, it was like that a lot. Uh, I think Lennon's is the only song I kind of had a little bit of, was like, let's add in, let's speed it up a little bit, kind of make it boppier, you know. Cause he was just kind of finger picking it and he was like, I don't know what to do. And I was like, well, let's, <laughs> let's do this, you know? And I added the guitar, uh, kind of the lead lick. I played all of that and just wrote that. I was like, it needs something there, you know? So that's kind of how I approach it is just like, listen to the song, listen to what it has, and then just play along with it and build it up and then edit it. Yeah. How, how those are two very different approaches. And so I, I'm wondering like, do you feel more comfortable with one or the other? This has been a theme that's been coming up in conversations lately with songwriters is like the being a part of a band. And in this case, kind of following Justin's lead and then, and sort of, sort of just going wherever he's going with it and then adding what you, what you can add versus like building the entire song yourself and then going through the editing process that and playing everything right like this this has been coming up with songwriters a lot and i don't know if i don't think it's a covid thing at all even though certainly a lot of people were at home by themselves doing these things because i'm noticing that a lot of songwriters i've talked to lately got to a certain point in their careers where they were just like you know what i know what i want what i want to do i know what i want this sound to be like I'm going to start doing my own thing and it's going to be this thing. No disrespect to this thing, but I know what I want and I can't do my thing here. So I'm going to go do it here. Is that kind of the case with you? I think you just like summed up what breaks up so many bands. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I'm more figured out what my thing is just by playing in water liars. Like when I started uh, playing water liars, I kind of thought I knew, I was like, oh, this is what I do, you know, like I, mm. I can do that thing. So with Wireliers, I can just kind of lay back, follow Justin, you know, go along, make some cool jams. 
but through just all the experience of following him and then the studios and the shows playing tons of shows i and then once i started making records after that again i was like oh like i have more this is this is it like this is more this is what i was supposed to sound like so um and then with him i think it's kind of the, the same thing like he was he going into it he was like in a band before and he wanted to kind of change his sound he wanted to do something but he didn't know how to do everything and he knew i had made some records and you know it was one of those things where i think both of us were really kind of fig we had done shit before we figured out a lot of shit together and then we kind of moved off to other shit that we want to do and when it comes to my own thing i'm definitely like i think most songwriters are you just like really particularly know what you want to do you know mm -hmm. what i mean at, at a certain point you get to a certain point where it's like i know what my sound is i know what kind of songs i want to write and i know what, like what i want my record to sound like so is that just a creative thing or are there sort of like um i don't know are there elements of control or elements of like ego involved there um, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> definitely ego and control i mean i think it is i think you'd be lying if you said there wasn't um i mean that's one of the things that got Tough with water liars actually it got to the point where um you know we all knew like what we were capable of and it starts to build this tension you know when you i don't know you know everybody's it's always like somebody's trying to get their stamp a little you're trying to push your knob up a little higher than the next guy's knob you're trying to you know it's just like i, I gotta stick out i gotta stick out because everybody's so good you get to the point where everybody's so good you know you got to lay off the ego and you got to sit back, you know, you got to know when to sit back. So yeah. I think when we first started that band, we were all kind of sitting back because we were scared. We were like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, you go ahead. Go ahead. I'm right behind you. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and then you get to the point where you're comfortable, right? You get to the point where you're comfortable and you're like, oh, I got this. Let me put me in the front. I got it. You know, like, so yeah, it's a confidence thing. It's an ego thing. Um, it's all of that stuff, you know? Um, it's just it really is a kind of a sad thing and with with songwriters in particularly um but i think that kind of comes with the territory um i mean songwriters literally kind of sit around and think about themselves and write about it and then sing about it in front of people and then make records about it and try to get people to buy them from them i mean it doesn't get much more <laughs> Maybe podcasting. That might, be the, that might be the only thing that rivals it. <laughs> hey, I think about getting into podcasting myself, you know? <laughs> Every songwriter's got a podcast now, man. <laughs> I mean, that's just, yeah, that's the nature of the thing. And to me, that's what's fun about it, though. I like, I like you know, and I always liked uh, finding the record that was made by the dude in the band that you never paid attention to. Hmm. I so you know like I always liked that and then I would and then still now like I find these records and things that I hear and I'm like oh, I didn't know that dude playing that band that's awesome you know yeah. you know I just think that shit's cool so yeah. and I think that's just part of being a musician and being a songwriter is like you gotta you gotta always be kind of finding your thing and doing your thing you know so yeah 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 for sure is that I didn't really think about it until you just mentioned that idea concept of like of the tension between um, different musicians in a band. But is that I wonder if that's part of what makes I, like I just think Roll On is just like this wonderful, wonderful record. It 
I wonder if that's some of the magic that's in that in that record is is tension because that's kind of like the end for you guys, right? That's pretty. Is that pretty much it? I mean, it just came out recently, but Water Lies has this really wonderful open ended. Yeah, we broke up, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, we're all just like the type of dude that's like. You could pay us enough money, we would do anything. You know, I think that's the biggest part of it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we would never say never to anything. Oh man, I wish I could afford to <laughs> to front a record to to pay for a record and a tour. <laughs> Talking about three dudes who will swallow their pride in a minute. You know? <laughs> could afford it. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't even know what I was saying. But, well, yeah, I was asking if there's lot, some of the magic of tension to roll on. There's a yeah. lot of tension. When even when I listen to that record, I hear my own tension. Mm. Um, but it's good. Yeah, it's, it's really I mean, good. I, I think it's good. I think it's. I think it's the most fun I had making a record. Roll mm. on was my most. It was the most fun. That's interesting. I think because. You know, we'd been making them down in Water Valley, which was great. I love that studio that we were working in there, but it, it kind of got, we did two records there, but we'd kind of done like a lot of seven inches and singles. We were kind of always in and out of that studio. And when you do that for a few years, I don't know, it kind of starts to get, lose its magic and you're just like, I, I don't know, you get stuck. And so taking Water Liars out of Mississippi and taking us to somewhere in Texas, I'd never been in that to that studio or even that part of outside of this is not Denton. This is like in the country, you know, like outside of Denton out there and us just like getting stuck, being stuck there. It was like, it was, it was different, you know, and it was good. It was good for us to just like get away from everything and be in that tension and kind of like figure out what we wanted to do, you know, like where we wanted to go. And that, that record was made with, that is where we wanted to go. If it would all, you know, hung on. So just yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad we at least got that one because it's it's just so wonderful. I've I've enjoyed it so much. Um, man, it's kind of wild. Like I ha- talking to you right now, just thinking about how much music that you've been a part of or made has been in my life, especially the last two or three years. Just how much of your stuff I've consumed, and it's really fun to be able to get to talk to you about it. Um. The and again, this guy did such a great job in this uh, this interview with you. So you kind of answered this question with him, but I'm curious about the 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 album cover is just like really startling and beautiful. Um, and so I'd, I'd love to hear you know about the the idea for it and how it came about. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like a thing. I was it, the album cover is supposed to depict kind of the moment that I thought of the album cover. Um, and presence, if you will. Yeah. But also, you know, a, 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 it, it's it's meant to have this kind of time timelessness to it, but also with the cell phone, it dates it in a way too. You know, it makes it like that time, and that's it. And then just it being last year, you know, uh, one thing we went through while I was making the record too was moving houses. So I, I like completely had to pack up my studio because I always record in whatever spare room I have in my house. And so my wife's uh, father was dying of a terminal illness. She was away uh, in, in DC for like a good part of the year. 
And in the middle of that, we bought a new house in Oxford, only about a couple miles away. But I had to pack up the entire house, pack up my entire studio in the middle of making the record. And just fucking really worried that like my acoustics weren't going to be good. It's just these plays is going to be totally different. Is it even going to sound the same? Like not even knowing if I was going to be able to finish the record. Uh, and really that's what that plus not been drinking is what the song drink the pain away is <laughs> it's just me like in the middle of a house move that and then it almost didn't happen for a minute after i had the whole house packed up and it was just like kind of a disaster um but that was one of those things like in the in the middle of making that record that that really created chaos but then like pulled it all together at the end and there was something about the image on the front of the record to me that represented the peace that came from it kind of the end of all of it you know it was just like us there still together uh, still stuck in this house um i wanted the imagery of windows because there's a lot of like window imagery in the album um i'm always kind of fascinated with the idea that you can still see yourself reflected in a window but still see out of it i like that metaphor a lot i like and that's also the same with water. I like metaphors, you know. I like. I'm, I'm also like really into birds. <laughs> I, I sneak birds into my songs now again because I'm kind of a nerdy birder guy in the heart. And uh, and I also am really concerned about how birds can fly into windows. They see themselves, and like this is this whole metaphor like that I have in my head. And so to me, I hope it represents like all of that. To me, when I look at it, it does for me. It tells me this is what happened with this year and it has all of those metaphors in it. And that's what I want to get through. Wow. <laughs> Dude, that's... And also you can see yourself in the phone and when you're looking at you know, there's, a, there's a lot of like reflection happening. So. Oh, yeah, physical reflection and inner reflection, especially the being being at home and then the reflection, the inner reflection of right. making the record and sitting down with those thoughts and and all the while how what do you do like to stay sent that's a lot right moving is stressful right even if it's just down the street it's very stressful uh, your your wife going through such a difficult time is stressful of course on her but also incredibly stressful on you you're newly sober at this time uh, the goddamn pandemic is happening, right? We're all freaking out already. And, and then we were like, at that point, we're still like, is this ever going to end? I mean, that's like pre-election. Huh? Trump was still president at that point. Too. Right, exactly. Like, that's a lot. So what were you doing to, I mean, how did you not, you say i want to drink my pain away for the first time in two months today how did you stay centered and not drink away your pain for the first time in two months and like what were you doing to how were you feeling in that moment and what were you doing to sort of maintain that balance and 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 stay grounded man i ran about four miles a day uh sat on my porch stared at the trees <laughs> uh wrote songs and if I can write one song like Drink the Pain Away, that song would carry me for a year or two. That's really what it was, man. Uh, and it was, it, you know, I was doing, I was, 
think because I was about a few months into my sobriety at that point, you know, I was doing a lot of online meetings. And so you're getting a lot of that day at a time talk. You're getting a lot of that stuff. I mean, that was really important, obviously. But I was really in that day at a time mindset, you know, mm-hmm. um, at that point. And not being able to kind of really look at the big picture was like what I needed. You know, I needed like one day at a time. Like this, today I get up, I, do, I write these songs, I, I play some guitar, I work on this record. I go for my run, I eat some food, I do my meeting, come back, you know, it's just like, that's what got me through it. Every day. Well, and that, that, I mean, that ties back into what you talked about with being in the present, <clears throat> you know, I mean, that's, that's the physical manifestation of, you know, that's the actual practice of it, that day at a time. And there's so many lessons there to learn for not only people in recovery, but I think all of us, um, lessons to be learned about that staying present. I, I've noticed lately, I was really good at it. I think during, during lockdown, which was actually really good for me because it slowed me down. And I've said, I've talked about this on the show a lot, so I won't bore people again, but like, it was good for me. I needed, I needed the pause button. I hated what was happening in the world, but for me personally, it was healthy. Um, But I've noticed that now this is interesting. Now that we're getting back out, I'm having more trouble staying present. I'm noticed I'm, I'm having to be more aware of it. I need to get back into a regular meditation practice, which I've fallen out of um, because I'm noticing that now that I'm out and I'm consuming different images and I'm interacting with people in a different way. It, I don't have that one, one day at a time kind of approach to my life and I'm not staying as present as I need to, in order to, to, to be as well-rounded and happy as I, I can. Yeah. I, I, you know, maybe it's because we can make plans now. Yeah. You know, I yeah. like, you know, I got plans next week for a week. It, it creeps up on you, right? You're like, oh, well, I can do this in a month. I, you know, a few months later, uh, there's this thing happening. I might or I might not do that. You're not, you don't even realize you're like thinking about it. You know, you're thinking about even if it's just a few months from now or what's going to happen at the end of the year, you start, we, as soon as we can get out of our house and do something, we're going to start consuming ourselves. I was like, well, what can I do? Mm-hmm. I agree with you, man. Lockdown was good for me. Um, I, I, I've locked myself down a few times over the decades, but uh, you know, just for my own sanity, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty antisocial person anyways. Um, but um, I, man, I think we all kind of needed to chill. Like we need, you know, a lot of the, to me, a lot of the talk that I've heard about, um, you know, when there's like, oh, you know, this is so bad. It's so good. We can go out now. We can do all these things. I want to be all of it is always economy based. Every mm-hmm. time it's like, even with musicians, it's like, well, they can't play shows. They can't make money. Uh, and I agree with all that. And I love live music. But sometimes I want to say, you know what? Sometimes it's not worth it for me to you know, drive six hours and make a hundred bucks and hope I can get a free meal. You know, like uh, all of this like economy bullshit. Maybe it is better for me to just sit at home and write songs and chill out a little bit because I can stay in my present and be healthy. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there like that. Um, and maybe they got their shit together more than I do. But I, well, I feel you, man. I Like, I feel you on it for real. 
Yeah, I think, <clears throat> and that's another thing I was asking. I've been asking a, a folks about musicians about is like envisioning what that can look like to maybe not tour, maybe not drive that six hours and put to to make that hundred bucks. Is there a path forward now that like? I love the live streams. I, I was, I was paying for them, you know, like, especially the good ones. Like some of, I say good ones, like the ones that were well-produced, you yeah. know, like Isbel did some shows that were just fucking phenomenal. And I was like, sure, I'll give you 15 bucks. I'm, I can sit at home and watch this, uh, you know, in the comfort of my home with my dogs and not get out. And, and, and even, it, even if COVID wasn't a thing, like the idea that I could just, not go and find parking and you know fight the crowd and all that kind of stuff and i i'm down you know so like what that path forward looks like for musicians who feel that same way is an interesting question because like yeah fuck driving six hours to make a hundred bucks you know <laughs> like i mean that's the thing uh, that's the thing you know i think it's my age too you know it's like if you're my age you got to figure out where you are as a musician you know if i got <laughs> in school it's not worth it for me but if i was looking at my 20 year old self i'd be like fuck it dude get out there go yeah. like what else you got to live you know it's yeah. different you know um so i definitely get it that i'm kind of the old guy in the room talking about this now too that's a big part of it and also i really dig what you're saying about liking live. i liked live streams too and i really thought about it a lot and i think because i grew up in pretty rural mississippi where there just weren't a lot of shows going on anyways and i would always have to drive to memphis or you know if there's a show in tupelo that was good because that was about an hour from me um but i had to you know i had to it was a thing for me to go to shows like i had to take out work or not take out work and save money and like do all this to go and i loved it um but i think i didn't learn music that way when I was a kid, because my family couldn't afford to do that. I wouldn't try. We wouldn't travel around to music festivals or anything. I learned music from watching TV. Mm. Uh, like Conan O'Brien was like, you know, seeing what band was going to be on Conan O'Brien at ten thirty was like. Mm -hmm. That's how I got into Sunvolt. I got my Sunvolt poster back there. They were on Conan. Yeah, you know, it's like one. And to me, that's what the live streams kind of reminded me of. Again, was like, oh yeah, you used to could learn a lot about bands and the way people play and what types of stuff they do I like I learned how to play music that way we're just like oh. watch people play on TV uh like the way they held their guitars the way they I would watch the way they did their fingers drums I learned drums by like watching dudes play on TV and I would just like figure out how to do that you know it's like wow I mean I think there's still something to that I, you know I think that I think it has value um so I think it's too often devalued in society because it's on a screen, you know, and it's free. But the problem is it's corporatized like everything else, you know, that's the problem, you know? Um, yeah. But that's, that's also one of the big problems with live music, you know, it's like, there's no good luck finding a good DIY venue with, with, with punk shows happening anywhere. In yeah. The well, and I think that's what I loved about those about folks having virtual tip jars. I mean, still somebody's getting paid, you know. Yeah, I, Venmo still get making money or whatever. But, um, <clears throat> but I just loved that. I loved how and and you know, it's interesting. Instead of buying a ticket, I'm tipping somebody, and I, I don't have the numbers here in front of me, but I'm sure I paid. I tipped people more. It was such a personal thing. I'm sure I tipped people more. 
you know, instead of buying a ticket that's going to the venue and being split or whatever, I, I had to have been tipping more. Cause like, especially some of my friends would play show live streams and I'm like, man, I, hell yeah. You know, I'll, I'll drop 10, 15 bucks on your 30 minute set, <laughs> you know, whereas I, I might pay that to see a whole band play at a venue, you know? And you got to stand around a bunch of sweaty people and get yeah. beers put on you. And... Yeah, exactly. It, it, I, think, I think part of it too is like I'm, my hearing is starting to get weird in my old age because I've worked in rock and roll for so long. Um, like I've been having to go to the doctor about it and stuff. Um, I've already got significant hearing loss. And so that's like one of those things too where I'm like, you know, I can hear this at the decent volume that I need to hear it at. And it's cool, you know. Yeah, that that scares me, man. I'm, mine's definitely going too, and I haven't gone to the doctor because that's not that's not what I do. I stick my head in the sand about shit like that. Uh, but it, I can, I know it's oh, happening. Why is it forcing me to go, dude? I would have never gone in a million years. But oh my god, she's like, I can't. You can't hear me. My partner drives her crazy. Like she speaks kind of quietly anyway, uh, kind of softly anyway. And I'll be like, I, I, I won't be able to hear a word she's saying, you know, especially if there's other noise going on. Like if there's a record playing or something, I'm like, baby, I can't, I have no idea. Like you need to say it right in my ear for me to understand what you're saying. So it does kind of scare me, but um, I'm curious about the live thing. And so, you know, you, you really didn't get a chance, I guess, to tour cinnamon noises. And mm -hmm. so, now you got two records. <laughs> Are I'm you gonna freaking out a little bit? <laughs> what? I'm freaking out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's what's gonna ask. It's like, how how's that feel? <laughs> what what are you gonna do? <laughs> Twenty songs I've never played live before. So. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. I've had a good deal of thought about it, and I don't know where I've gotten with it. Honestly, mm. uh, my initial thought was like there's so much happening right now there's so much music coming out and there's so many tours that people just like ready to get back out there i was like mm -hmm. because of the level i'm at where like i don't have a huge draw and i'm still sort of fighting for my spot in the kind of lower middle echelon of shows mm -hmm. i was like i'm just gonna chill out a minute because i can and because i need the time and i need to spend time with my kids and i need to stay sober so i'm just gonna like chill out mm -hmm. for that i don't need to get out there but like I want to, and and the real one, the main reason I need to is from to sell records and to make money, you know, honestly. Uh, and that's something I really had to like come to terms with is like really asking myself like why, you know, like why do you want to play live? Like do you, I, I think a lot of musicians went through that last year. It's like, oh, like what do you get out of playing live, and why do you want to do it? You know, why do you want to tour? Why do you want to play a show at all? And for me, that's kind of how I am about everything. And I think a lot of musicians just come to a lot of different conclusions. You know, some people really just love playing live. Mm -hmm. uh, and I definitely have before, but I know like even 10 years ago, it was starting to kind of like, eh, I could take it or leave it mm -hmm. a lot of times. Um, I also really struggle with stage anxiety. Uh, a lot and i've never really talked about it and a lot of people don't know uh but a lot of that was tied with my drinking too like i just i couldn't play unless i was bombed um the last solo tour i tried to do i went into it wanting to do it sober because it was just me in a car and 
the guitar and I wanted it to be good shows and I wanted to be level headed and I wanted to remember everything. And I made it like two days because my, I was, the anxiety in my guts and I was, I was physically ill. Mm-hmm. Like I could just getting on stage and I like couldn't, I couldn't make it work. I remember being in Atlanta and I got like two songs in and I was like, does anybody have any whiskey? Like give it to me now. And then, and then I played great, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. so like, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of scared to, to get back out there for that reason. And I'm just like, really, I like, I don't know why I'm, I'm just like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would love to play in front of people, but like just in the right setting. Um, and like in a good way. So, yeah. I mean, I really, I kind of want to play these songs, but. I don't know. I don't even know how to do it. Like the band I've been playing with, the guy's been playing drums with me. He's about to move, and my bass player has already moved. I think that's another thing that happened last year was like a lot of bands and musicians had to figure shit out, you know. And so, um, it's always easier for me to play with a band than play solo with my anxiety because I can just kind of let them have it. I come up and sing. I back it up a little bit. Let them have it, but. It's a terrifying thing to be a man alone on a stage with a guitar, uh, for me, anyways. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I think a lot of folks, I, I can relate to that. I mean, I, I don't do it professionally. You know, I just play open mics every once in a while, and I've gotten better about it now. But it's a, it's a lot. I mean, you're, you're putting your art out there by yourself. There's nowhere to hide. It's just you and your guitar. If it's just if that's how you're doing it, and but I also wonder, like, so it sounds like it's crippling kind of anxiety for you. It, is that something you've unpacked as like where that deep a level comes from? Like, has that come up in any, in, and if this is getting too personal, please tell me, but like, is that something you've unpacked? So I, that when you... I haven't completely unpacked it yet. It's something that's actually kind of new within the last few years um, okay. that I realized was going on. Uh, I'm still trying to figure it out, you know, like, yeah, I, I just, I don't know yet, but this, I mean, the last, I had kind of, that last tour made me realize it was definitely a thing. And then I didn't realize if it was just the situation, the situational, you know, things that were going on around that tour and just other things that maybe were making me that way. You know what I mean? Like maybe it wasn't stage anxiety, which is anxiety. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I think through that tour and then what's happened recently kind of made me has realized like it's, it's a version of social and stage anxiety, you know? I wonder if being sober will actually help that. Like, you know what I mean? Cause I think alcohol does, it masks the anxiety for a minute, but it adds to the anxiety on the other end. Right. Your, yeah. it, your blood pressure specific, you know, physically it does the guilt that you feel from what you may have said or not said or done or not done the night before the warped view of what happened the night before because of the alcohol and how, and the questions that come up in your head because of that. And you may end up going out there and being like, Oh wait, I'm good. I'm sober. I'm not going to do anything that I'm going to regret tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I like, it's one of those things I think about it weekly. I'm just basically trying to figure out like, okay, when am I going to try it? Cause I definitely got to try it. Yeah. You know, at some point to like, you just get back out there. Uh, I think I'm part of it. I'm just like scared that I forgot how to do it. You know, yeah. I mean, you, you said it two albums with no shows. 
behind it. I'm like a little bit like, maybe I've fucking lost it. You know? <laughs> right. I think that's a natural feeling. I'm sure that's not true. You know, once you get out I'm there, sure, it'll be I'm fine. sure it's not either, but yeah. I think it's a real, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just like one of the only musicians at my level who's still self-loathing, but I don't think that that's true. Nope. Um, Not in my experience. And I talk to a lot of folks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm just I like, I've never been, I've never been that confident live with a guitar mm. uh, for some reason. I'm a lot more confident behind a drum kit mm. or like playing bass or playing with something like with water liars. I was, I was, I got to the point where I was like really confident, you know, like mm -hmm. I can, I can do it in my sleep, my eyes closed, my drunk, mm -hmm. you know, high, <laughs> whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could do it. Um, it wasn't as good, but I could do it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just one of those things. We'll we'll see what happens. I, I, there's something too like for these songs for both of these records the types of places I want to play, I got to figure out where those are. Cause I've thought about it just kind of going the straight house show tour, um, which I might do. I haven't really decided yet, but I like the idea of a stage. I like the idea of there being that little bit of barrier between in the audience. Uh, I know some people want to break that down. Um, and I, I, I always was one of those people who was pro breaking down the barriers of stages too in my punk rock community. But then when I got older, I kind of realized, like, I kind of like it because it just separates, gives me that level of separation that I need to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. There's just something about, to me, the most terrifying thing for me has always been to, like, sit in a room and play for four people. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, like, more ter even more terrifying than being on a stage. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So there's that whole aspect of it, too. So if I do get back out there, I really want to try to find rooms you know, they're not big rooms, but like rooms that I can play where people will actually listen. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is also something I really have done a lot. I've played a lot of rooms where people weren't listening to me at all. Mm -hmm. And as a songwriter, you're like, well, yeah, I get 200 bucks, but who gives this shit? You know, like, I got to see Patterson Hood. Uh, last week, he played this wonderful venue. It's relatively new in the Orlando area called Tuffy's uh, Music Box. And um, and it's run by musicians. And they were so serious about like, please be quiet, please listen, you know? And I think most people who are going to see Patterson with an acoustic guitar are there to listen to Patterson. Um, mm -hmm. And so the crowd was great. And then the next day I saw him in a venue that was, that had, it had to be moved into the amphitheater Right. So it was supposed to be outside and kind of intimate and they moved it into the amphitheater and it was still a great show and the crowd was still really nice, but the difference was really, st was stark. The fact that, 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 that Tuffy's is like, I even asked my buddy, I was like, cause I kind of, I don't know, this is an anxiety thing too, I think, but I love standing in the back. <laughs> like I love just enjoying a show from the back. I don't really have social anxiety, but there's something about crowds, especially now us getting back out into the world. Like I just feel comfortable back there. I don't want to be anybody's way, even though I'm not tall and I'm never anybody's way. I just feel like I'm in somebody's way all the time. And I just asked my buddy, I was like, who runs the place? It's like, do you mind if I stand in the back? And he's like, honestly, I'd rather you sit. I'd rather you sit and because standing people tend to talk and not that I think you're going to talk, but somebody's going to come talk to you. And then that's going to change this whole experience. I was like, Fair enough. 
So I sat and it was fucking awesome. And everybody was quiet for the most part until they all got drunk. But everybody was quiet for the most part. And it was just so, such a beautiful night, you know, in that room. Um, but, you know, I think in this area, at least we've got a few of those, you know, there's one in Jacksonville, the Blue Jay listening room that's that way, that they're very serious about it. Um, I don't know. I mean, and I'm saying all this, I completely agree with everything you're saying. Your buddy is smart too. Yeah. Like, hey, you got to sit down because it's not about you. It's somebody talking to, you know, mm-hmm. a man standing. It's like another, it's it's like a man standing at a construction site, you know? Like, hey, what's going on over here? <laughs> um, yeah, for real. That, that yeah. That's that's great. Um, I'm hoping I can get into some rooms and spaces like that. That would be, mm-hmm. and I feel like such a dick for talking. <laughs> I'm coming. To play you my songs, <laughs> not myself. I demand silence. <laughs> yeah, but if you're at a venue that expects, what the fuck up? That that I really I kind of I think I have a problem asking for that. Too. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because I'm always been, I've been the guy at shows. It was like this is dude on stage. Like what's going on? You know, like. Yeah. Um, but if you go to the place like that, I mean, it's a little yeah. bit of work, but finding those venues that are like, this is what we do here. We sit and we listen, right? Yeah. Shut up and listen. Right? That's, that's what we do here. It's not like you're saying that, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's you going to seeking out those places that want that, you know, so everybody there, you know, I think you've just opened up like all of my answers that I needed for touring. Honestly, I have to say thank you because there's so much of I'm still like deconstructing so much from my punk rockness. Mm-hmm. Um, I love so much like what I learned from DIY punk spaces and punk music and hardcore in general when I was young, like gave me so much and I hardly listen to it now. It's still a good bit, but not as much as I used to. But mm-hmm. there's so much about the ethos that it gave me so much when I needed it coming out of a church setting. It's like hard for me to like push against that ethos when I need to, when it's healthy for me. When you need to say, when I need to say like, Andrew, grow up, you know, like mm-hmm. it's okay for you to say, I want to play a listening room, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> right. Being a dick, you know? Yeah. yeah. You're not a dick for like creating this beautiful piece of art and then, and pouring yourself into it and then wanting people to listen to it. That's not, that's not you being a dick. <laughs> well, if I said that at a punk show, they'd be like, who's this dick? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man, dude, this has been so much fun. I, I don't want to take too much more of your time. This has been such an honor. We always end on um, what you're getting down on, what you've been consuming art wise, books, music, a film you saw, a painting that inspired you or that you made, for example, like anything lately art-wise that's got you fired up? Man, I'm gonna get super weird on you. Uh, I've been reading this book called Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? Uh, which is a sort of a biography of this, he's, the guy who's considered kind of the king of Christian rock. His name is Larry Norman. Uh, and he put out these really gnarly Christian rock records in the 70s super weird dude um i mean like one of his the first time i ever heard a larry norman song was in the 90s when like that uh christian rap group dc talk like uh covered one of his songs for a video or something and i heard it i was like what is the song uh and it's like a super weird acoustic ballad about the rapture and being left behind to kind of throw back to what we were talking about earlier it's like a really weird song that makes you feel really weird 
but it's gorgeous. It's a beautifully written song. I mean, it sounds like it could be written by John Lennon or Paul McCartney. Um, so anyways, I've been kind of fascinated with this dude for a long time. And I, it's only like since Spotify have I even been able to kind of hear all of his records that are on there now. Um, because he just couldn't, it was hard to find them. I was always looking for them on vinyl and stuff. And anyways, uh, this guy, Greg Thornberry, uh, wrote a book basically kind of like about his whole life. So I would recommend looking up the book, look up Larry Norman, uh, look up his records on Spotify and listen to this beautiful, weird Christian rock. Madness. All right. And get into the genius that this dude was. Uh, he was a genius but like nuts (laughs) you know like but he also he was kind of like a form he helped form this thing called the jesus movement which were kind of these jesus hippie people in in the 70s which kind of went on to form what people know as the cornerstone music festival which is the big christian music festival at least that happened in illinois okay and that's where i got introduced to people like pedro the lion and and damian gerardo and stuff like that so you know, it's sort of it's sort of on the fringes of, of Christian rock. You know, it's not this dude like didn't even like the evangelicals hated him. Uh, they just like couldn't they couldn't rein him in. He was too weird and and like he actually wanted to be like Jesus. And they were like, what what is what is it with this guy? Um, <laughs> I want to help us sell Christian records. You know, and he was like, I don't I don't care about that. Like, yeah about the message cool all right i'll check that out i did not see that coming. it's a weird recommendation but like it's a cool rabbit hole to go into awesome thank you dude a meaningful connection just such a beautiful record i mean you put out two wonderful records in a row and i'm just i'm so grateful for that for that music i'm so grateful for you indulging my water liars questions and i'm so grateful for all that you've shared uh today this was so much fun i'm really really appreciate it great little talk i appreciate it too Staring at the longest line, I came back to myself Looking through the windshield of our busted out old van There is no turning back and there's no wasting time When you don't come from anywhere and you leave nothing behind Andrew Bryant, y'all. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank all of you for listening. AndrewBryantMusic.com for all things Andrew. Get a physical copy of his excellent new record, A Meaningful Connection, while you're over there. Y'all, this was too much fun. I'm just so grateful for conversations like this. MarinadePodcast.com for all things The Marinade, including written pieces, photography, our online store, and so much more. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Give us a follow and a five-star rating on your podcast app. These are all free ways to support the show. If you really like what we're doing, please consider joining our Patreon community, where for just a few bucks a month, you can gain access to Patreon-exclusive content like our show Jason's Journey, where I talk about the moments that shape my creative life and provide a window into the process of making the marinade. Sometimes we even get together for Patreon happy hours. Um, Just a couple episodes ago, we had a live marinade where our patrons got a chance to ask Seth Walker some questions and then just kind of hang out. We just kind of 
we're talking and, and, and just having a good time. It's really fun. If you can swing it, come join us for, I mean, it's just little as a couple dollars a month. But um, if that's not in the cards, I totally understand. And I'm grateful for everybody just for listening. Thank you for listening and spreading the word about the marinade. I appreciate every single one of you. All right, y'all, it's time for what I'm getting down on, the segment of the show where I talk about the art that is inspiring me at the moment. I want to take a minute to plug one of my favorite local record stores who are, uh, their, their stuff is also available online, especially if you're into sort of like rare music books or rare, um, you know, rare records. Uh, if you want to, if you're the kind of person who does a deep dive into like jazz or hip hop or something, the folks over at Binks Orlando are friends of mine. It's a coffee shop, a record store, a recording studio. It's such a cool spot. It's all in downtown Orlando. This is not a paid advertisement. There, it's just me talking about a really cool moment that happened a couple of days ago. There's, there's nothing else like Binks in this area. My good friend Philly Kennedy is the uh, assistant manager and James Reed is the owner and manager. Philly was set to spin a vinyl DJ set on Friday night. I'm recording this on a Sunday. And then our good friend, good friend of the show and wonderful songwriter Jordan Foley was playing later that night at a different venue. So I was like, I'll go see Philly and then I'll shoot over and check out Jordan's set for a little while hopefully in bed at a decent hour. So I went to Binks first and grabbed a cup of coffee um, since a set that begins at 8 on a Friday night is kind of late for my old ass. And uh, while waiting for Philly's set to begin, I flipped through the bargain bin at Binks. I found a copy of Chris Christopherson's The Silver-Tongued Devil and I, which includes one of my favorite songs ever. This record came out in 1971. It includes Loving Her Was Easier Than Anything I'll Ever Do Again, which came into to my life through Waylon Jennings. And it's just one of the most, it it's always lays me flat. It's such a beautiful song. I, I love it so much. And everything that Christofferson has done is incredible. But that, that particular record um, really stands out to me. I also scooped up Garrett Klon's self-titled solo record from 2016, um, Garrett's best known for his work with the band Texas is the Reason, but my introduction to his music was through Have Gun, Will Travel. Uh, he's kind of an honorary member of the band. He often opens their shows and then plays with them. And uh, this was a really exciting find for me. Uh, Have Gun has meant so much to the marinade. Frontman Matt Burke has appeared on the show twice. They're friends of ours. They've been really good in just supporting the show and supporting this thing that we're doing and encouraging it. Um, there are a few feelings like flipping through records and finding something uh, exciting and unexpected and that you emotionally connect to. This was such a moment. Y'all, buy physical copies of music that you love when possible. It helps the artist. It's better for the environment. Don't believe me? Look it up. If you buy from local stores, it helps your local economy. There are so many benefits. Plus, it's just fucking fun. I love y'all. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate you so much. Everybody go out and listen to his record. Buy a physical copy. Until next time, go out and create something. Cheers, y'all.